focus on what you're for. And okay. part of who you are is what you've done. And that's not always pleasant. But part of it, you've done some pleasant things. So give yourself credit for that. But yeah. part of who you are is where you're going, where you're heading. And so your past is not the total determinant of where you're going to be. Um, your future is too. And, and one thing people need to realize is that even though if they've made many mistakes and gotten stuck in the mud a, a lot of times, um, they have the potential to be someone different the way you became someone different, you know, you, yeah. you but, you know, some of it is, you know, the hitting rock bottom thing that AA talks about, but some of it is saying, you know, I, I don't have to land on the bottom before I <laughs> decide that who I want to be is a part of who I am now. And I can affiliate with that and not just where I've been. You are listening to the One Day at a Time podcast. On this podcast, my guests share their stories of alcoholism, addiction, and how they recovered so that you can too. My hope is that you find the inspiration and resources you need to let go of what's holding you back so that you can transform into the person you were always meant to be. Ready? Here we go. Hi friend, thank you for downloading the podcast. My name is Arlena and I'll be your host. Today, my guest is the esteemed Dr. David Spiegel. I'm going to read you his bio from the Stanford University of Medicine website. But as a side note, this is not the David Spiegel from the Amber Heard trial. So wanted to clear that up. Dr. Spiegel is a Wilson professor and associate chair of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, director of the Center on Stress and Health, and medical director of the Center for Integrative Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Spiegel has more than 40 years of clinical and research experience studying psycho-oncology, stress management, health, pain control, sleep, hypnosis, and conducting randomized trials involving psychotherapy for cancer patients. He has published 13 books, 480 scientific journal articles, and 170 book chapters on hypnosis, psychosocial oncology, stress, psychology, trauma, and psychotherapy. He was a member of the work groups on stressor and trauma-related disorders for the DSM-4 and the DSM-5 editions of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. In my estimation, Dr. Spiegel is largely responsible for legitimizing modern hypnosis and making it widely acceptable through the Reverie app. He was recently on the Huberman Lab podcast where they went deep into the neuroscience and brain mechanics of hypnosis. So I highly recommend you check that out too. But today I directed him to speak primarily on the use of hypnosis to treat addiction, trauma, and chronic pain management for those who don't want to become dependent on drugs. The topics we will cover today include what is hypnosis, guided meditation versus hypnosis, hypnosis for healing shame-based uh, self-identity, why guilt is often the response to sexual abuse and trauma, and we talk a bit about Reverie, the low-cost app for learning self-hypnosis and so much more. It was an honor to have him on. I learned so much from him, and I know you will too. So without further delay, please enjoy this episode with Dr. David Spiegel. Well, Dr. Spiegel, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Arlena. Glad to be here. I'm going to try really hard not to fangirl and be professional, but I'm so excited that you're here <laughs> That's today. Nice. 
<laughs> yeah. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. No, I start, I got really interested in hypnosis a couple of years ago. I reached out to somebody in my local area. I was like, you know what I need? I need some rewiring of my brain. <laughs> There's all this talk about neuroscience and how you can rewire your brain so that you can change behaviors, which is what we'll be talking about. So I went to this gal and had an amazing experience. Hmm. And I was like, I have to incorporate this in the work that I do. So I've been obsessively studying it. And of course I came across um, information you've written over, is it 480 journal articles at this point? Something 13 like books. That's a, that's right. yeah. I, I felt so silly. Cause after we talked, I was like, congratulations on your article. And you're like, yeah, that's just another <laughs> day in the life. Of, <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but I think it's really incredible. The work you're doing. I'm very interested in the work you're doing around breath work with Dr. Andrew Huberman. I'm a huge yes. uh, Huberman lab podcast fan. Sure. Uh, so I'm going to ask you about some of that stuff too. Um, I promise I'll get to a question, um, but to friends. <laughs> I'm glad to listen to you. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you're used to that, right? As right, a, right. It's my day job, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but I kind of wanted to frame the discussion. You know, I see everything through the lens of recovery. Like how do I, how can I help facilitate uh, healing for people that struggle with addiction issues? Yes. Whether it's drugs, alcohol, food, uh, there's all kinds, right? But it all boils right. down to, um, I'm just going to call it addiction for the sake of our discussion. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm really interested in um, also not just uh, addiction on the surface level, like how to handle cravings, maybe the triggers like anxiety or depression that cause people to drink, but also the underlying trauma that people have that sort of lead to addiction. Um, but let's start off at the very beginning. Let's talk about like what hypnosis really is. Cause I think there's sure. a lot of misunderstanding with all these stage hypnosis people. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's true. It, it's sort of like understanding modern psychopharmacology from guys who sold snake oil, you know, um, <laughs> right. you, don't, you don't want to do it. Hypnosis is the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. It's the first time a talking interaction between a doctor and a patient was thought to have therapeutic benefit. It started about 250 years ago. So it's been around for a long time. But as you note, Arlena, it's been kind of mischaracterized by people who saw a stage hypnosis show somewhere and watched the football coach dance like a ballerina and think, oh, that's that's what it is. It's either silly or dangerous or both, you know. But uh, it's actually a very powerful therapeutic tool and what hope if have you, have you ever gotten so caught up in a good movie that you forgot you're watching a movie and enter the imagined world and later on you may have thought about it and said well you know it was a little implausible or that actor wasn't so good but at the time you're in you're in this the movie not in the audience and hypnosis is like that it's a narrowing of the focus of attention um and Coupling, so you can concentrate on certain things very intently, but that means you put outside of conscious awareness other things that could be in consciousness but aren't. Um, and so you dissociate, you disconnect. And um, part of what that allows you to do is to be cognitively flexible, to see things from a different point of view. When people are stuck in addictions of one kind or another, they're, they're sort of, it's like a rutted pool table. You know, the ball will always go down the same track. Um, and you, you don't think 
differently about what's going on. And the key to a good therapeutic intervention is one that gets you to be cognitively flexible. So you think differently about what's going on. Now, if you're worried about suggestibility, um, you think, oh, well, I could learn to think the way that person thinks, and maybe that's not a good idea. Well, maybe it's not, but if it happens to be a good idea, that's a real therapeutic opportunity. And so is it, hypnosis- is that, Sorry to ahead. interrupt you, no, uh, but, but is that sort of like adding um, context to a belief like, you know, little kids, you know, uh, maybe have, they go up to mom all excited about something she snaps at them. They walk away with this feeling like I'm bad. You know, and and so does it add in that suggestibility phrase, does it allow for adding context so that a person can sort of reframe their beliefs about themselves? Yes, I think that's a good. In fact, uh, one of the things that we found in in doing neuroimaging and hypnosis is that one of the things that happens is you you have inverse connectivity. That is when one region is active, the other is inactive between the prefrontal cortex, where we think and plan the part of my brain that, and yours that's hopefully working at the moment, and, and you disconnect from the posterior cingulate cortex. That's part of what we call the default mode network. It's the part of your brain that's active when you're ruminating about yourself. You're thinking, who am I? What am I? And so it means that you can immerse yourself in a current activity that is disconnected from your usual set of expectations and beliefs about who you are what you can do, what you should do, who you are. So just your example with a child feeling hurt and I'm no good and mommy doesn't love me will tend to inhibit the child from engaging in activities that the child thinks might stir up that same reflection on him or herself. Um, and it, the nice thing about hypnosis is you can try something that you ordinarily might not have tried. Um, and uh, you may find that it's great. You may find that it's not, but it kind of frees you from your usual repertoire of associations and activities. And so it's a great therapeutic context for a good therapeutic approach. Right. So I interrupted you. You were going to talk about, I think you're going to lead into like the salient network. Salient. So yes. So the other thing that, that happens in hypnosis uh, we found is you turn down activity in the salience network. Now the salience network is your alerting system. It's the thing you hear a loud noise, you think what's going on and you shift your attention away. It matches patterns. And there are patterns that go along with normal, quiet, everything's fine activity. And there are patterns that come where there's potential danger. It's a network that gets played a lot um, by social media, which will float some threatening little thing by you on your screen. And you think, oh my God, I better see what that is. So it's constantly disrupting your flow of attention. And, and uh, in hypnosis, you turn down activity in that region. So you're less likely to be distracted by things that might keep you from focusing. So it assists this narrowness of focal attention. Um, and you also increase connection between the, the executive control region, the prefrontal cortex, and the insula, which is another part of the salience network, but it's one that's related to mind-body connection. So your brain controlling your body feeling how your body is doing what we call interoception goes through the insula so you're in a mental state where you're less likely to be distracted um, you're better connected with your body and you're disconnected from the things that normally govern your view of who you are and what you should be doing and that's a that's a very um propitious 
uh, mental set for trying out a new point of view and seeing how it feels. I think it's so interesting you talk about dissociation because I've always heard of that term in context of, you know, when somebody is having a trauma experience, they dissociate or if someone is like in survival mode that you hear people in recovery talk about, you know, you're sort of in survival mode your whole life. It's hard to get out of it in adulthood. And when I talk to people or work with people that are early in recovery, they're so, I've been using maybe the term incorrectly dissociated from their true feelings or so in survival mode, like being a people pleaser or something like that, that when we ask people, you know, what do you want? They're so dissociated from their own wants and needs that they can't even tell you what they really want or need, but you're using this. So this is like healthy dissociation versus dysfunctional dissociation. Well, it's, yeah. And it's not, I, I would say in defense of people who do that, it's not always dysfunctional. It may be necessary to get by oh, yeah. in traumatic situations. The problem is when you yeah. keep doing it, when you're no longer in a traumatic situation, it stops being so helpful and starts to become the problem. So, you know, trauma, you know, people who have been physically or sexually abused, uh, people in accidents and things like that, is fundamentally the experience of being made into an object, a thing. Um, you know, we don't like that. We like agency. We like to be in control. But when you're being beaten or chased or sexually assaulted, uh, most uh, rape survivors experience the rape as if they were floating above their body, feeling sorry for the woman being assaulted beneath them. And when something like that's happening to your body, it, it's an adaptive response to disconnect from it. You don't want the big picture there. You just want to get through whatever is going on. And so many assault victims are very clever about what they do. So, you know, I, but you can help them with hypnosis to reconstruct that experience. So you can fill in the gaps in what their experience was. And one of them is often blaming themselves, you know, feeling as if somehow I should have known better than to walk to the drugstore at three in the afternoon where this guy attacked me in the park. Or um, I, I had a woman who was, uh, it was an attempted rape, and um, she was badly beaten by the guy. She had a basilar skull fracture eventually, but he, he she, she fought him off, but felt terrible about having gotten into it. And in hypnosis, I had her picture, body safe and comfortable. That's one very important thing in using hypnosis is you're reliving it mentally, but not physically. Your body is okay. So you get your body in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or floating in space. Just feel your body being safe and comfortable. But picture one aspect of what happened. And on the left side of the screen, she pictured, uh, she said, um, you know, um, if this guy succeeds in getting me up to my apartment, he's not just going to rape me, he's going to kill me. You know, so she, in a way, you think, oh, thanks, Spiegel, you're making her even worse. You know, she, it was bad enough she was physically assaulted. Um, but um, she was able to tolerate that. And then I said, on the other side of the screen, picture one thing you did to protect yourself. And she said, you know what? He's surprised that I'm fighting that hard. He didn't think I would. So she emerged from that, giving herself credit for having saved her life that she was feeling guilty for having gotten beaten as badly as she was. And she realized she probably saved her life. And so you can help people 
fill in the gaps around the edges of the dissociation and see things that at the time you probably didn't want to be thinking about. You just wanted to survive, but later on helps you put it into a broader perspective. And so dissociation is not a bad thing. We do it. Some people get caught in it and don't control it. And it's really how much can you control the dissociative experience and how much not. And there are people with extreme disorders like dissociative identity disorder where they do that all the time and they don't feel they control it and you have to teach them how to. But a certain amount of dissociation goes on in everyday life and is perfectly normal and useful. Yeah, I have such compassion for people who have had those traumatic experiences and and dissociate. And I recognize that as the brain's way of protecting itself. Um, It's so interesting to me that it seems to be a reoccurring experience from people who have had like sexual abuse or a traumatic experience that they blame themselves. What is that about? Well, Arlena, one of the toughest things is that as humans, we'd rather feel guilty than helpless. Oh, the experience of being made into an object is just terrifying. You know, suddenly, you know, in a car accident, suddenly, you know, the car starts skidding and you're no longer controlling what it's doing and what's happening until you hit something. Um, it's, uh, it's a way of imagining that you could rerun the movie with a better outcome. You know, that if I only did X, this wouldn't have happened. And so people cling to this idea. We, we, we don't let go of our sense of agency very easily. And unfortunately, one way some people do is with substances that they'll drink until they're diluting their sense of agency. And in a sense, you know, if you feel guilty, you may associate, Arlena, your agency with a sense of false responsibility. That is, you know, um, well, you see, when I had control, look what I did. You know, I my father beat me up again or my husband beat me up again or something. And so you want to disconnect from agency, thinking that'll keep you from making more trouble for yourself, when, of course, it does exactly the opposite. You wind up creating more trouble for yourself. Agency is not the enemy. It's understanding where you had agency and where you didn't. And so um, letting go of agency may seem like a way of protecting yourself, but of course, it turns out with alcohol and other substances to be the opposite. Yeah, no, I experienced that in my own life. I had a very shame-based identity when I was young and I sort of leaned into it. Like, well, if I can't be good, I'm going to be good at being bad type of thing. I had like this real rebelliousness about it. And, um, but it did create this, uh, downward spiral in terms of my self-esteem and identity. And I think, you know, half my, I would say half my listeners are probably like in early recovery. They're sort of addressing the crisis of, you know, alcohol. We're going to talk about the reverie app because I know you have some tools to address that. Um, But uh, in the beginning, you know, first they handle the crisis of getting the drinking under control or, you know, through abstinence mostly. Um, And then the other half of the people, once they resolve the crisis are really thinking about, they're in this process of reevaluating their identity. Like for me, you know, I was the party girl. I was just wild. I was just, you know, then I had all these shame-based labels too. Like I'm not good enough. I'm less than, never smart enough, never, you know. So I tried to overcompensate with like achievement and and looking Mm -hmm. a certain way. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on, you know, as we go through this process, is it possible to use hypnosis to, 
uh, change our identities so that we can build our self-esteem and really bolster, like get rid of that idea of that I'm not good enough? Um, yes, there are ways to use it for that. You know, your story about yourself reminds me, there's a great country song called I, I Want to Do Right, But Not Right Now. <laughs> <laughs> and, but you see, part of, part of what you were doing was saying, if there is this, I think, if, if, if there is this sort of label about me that, you know, I'm, 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 I'm bad and deserve the shame, I, I want, I'm going to own it. You know, yeah, I'm going to have a sense of agency yeah. over something that I don't really have that much agency about because some of it is what other people conclude about me, not who I am and what I do. Um, so you're, you're kind of missing your feeling of agency, but you figure if I'm stuck with one of the two, I guess I'm going to have to own the bad one, but you don't have to own the bad one. So if you want to have agency, yes, but then the issue is how you can use hypnosis to help people with that. And you know, one of the principles of changing behavior that's most important is what's called intermittent positive reinforcement. Um, so if people keep telling you don't, you know, if I tell you don't think about purple elephants, <laughs> what are you thinking about? Purple so elephants. instead, you want to focus on what you're for, on something you can genuinely feel good about. Um, and and. So if you want to go back to your history of the last three years of not remembering a lot of what went on and getting into all kinds of trouble and forgetting to do things you should have, um, instead, you want to, you know, if you keep thinking about that, it will have a predictable result, which is it'll trigger that same circuit in your posterior cingulate cortex that says, I'm an irresponsible, bad person who did this to someone and forgot that and did all kinds of terrible things. That's not something you feel reinforced by doing. So instead, what we try to, with the narrowness of focus and hypnosis, I try to get people to think about something they can immediately feel good about rather than bad about. And that is, I'm going to focus on my role of respecting and protecting my body. So this is, I'm disconnecting them from like, who am I as a person at this point? And just saying, well, think about the way you cared for your kitten or your baby. Um, uh, and think about it, it, it's easy to affiliate with a sense of responsibility for a dependent creature um, than it is to think about the complex history of your own life and how people treated you and what that means and all that. So you say for my body, um, alcohol is a poison. I, and so you get them to focus just on that concept. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. So what you're doing now is making a commitment not to change who you are, not to change what your mother thinks about you, but to change right now the stance I'm going to take in respecting and protecting my body. And it is something that most people have a natural positive reaction to and have done it in other circumstances. But somehow we don't think about our body as the creature that is most dependent on us. Your body has to take into it anything that you put into it, even if it's damaged by it. It can't tell you in words. It tells you through, you know, difficulty with con maintaining consciousness, through difficulty with motor control, through damage to your liver, through lots of things. That's your body's way of telling you it's being damaged. But it has to take into it anything you put into it. So you immediately start thinking, okay, if the place to start is respecting and protecting my body. And the problem when we think, oh, well, I'm just doing it to myself. Well, you are. But when you think that, you also think the moment I stop, everything will be fine, except 
your body has a longer memory than that. And the things you've done to your body um, are going to be around for a while, if not forever. So you, if you use the dissociation in an odd way, Arlena, to distance yourself a bit from your body, to think, I'm, I'm not the same as my body, but I can't live without it. Um, then you think, well, then I'm in a position of responsibility over my body and what goes into it. And that I can control. And so, and then you can immediately start feeling good about controlling it. And are there cravings? Maybe, maybe not. You know, we all have cravings to do things that we don't do. Um, and the fact that you crave it doesn't mean uh, you need to do it. Uh, and in fact, one of the things, one of the most important findings from National Institute of Drug Abuse um, is that for many addicts, um, the process of chasing the drug, the chase is better than the catch, that people get more pleasure out of, out of experiencing the path to the next hit than they do to actually taking the drug, that the drug experience itself is kind of an afterthought. It's the the process you associate in this mesolimbic dopamine pathway in your brain, um, pleasure with just the thought, I'm going to get it again. And so it, it, you, you may have a craving, but the craving is not all pharmacological. Some of it is, but some of it isn't. Uh, it's psychological. And you can just say, okay, there's a craving there. But th that doesn't have to be a gun to my head. It can be a thought. And I will weigh that thought against how good I will feel right now if I make a commitment to respect and protect my body the way I did when I had a child and respect and protect the child. So um, it's, it's a way of using the dissociation to cut you loose from assumptions you have, which is if I, if I feel like I want it, I have to have it versus, okay, that's a feeling. But I also have a feeling when I think about committing to respect and protect my body. So we have people go through the self-hypnosis exercise. Anytime you have an urge, don't fight it, admit it, sit down or lie down, go into the state of self-hypnosis and reestablish your commitment to treat your body with respect, to focus on what you're for. And when you can do that, you can feel good from the moment you reinforce that decision to respect and protect your body. No, I think that's so important. That's a very concrete, practical application. And I love that the uh, Reverie app has short little uh, one minute uh, hypnosis sessions. And there right. is a longer one for the alcohol one. And I know there's some for uh, quitting smoking as well, which a yes. lot of people have a problem with. You know, what I find really interesting over the uh, almost 29 years that I've been sober, I've seen people coming into like 12 step rooms with this, mm -hmm. with just like such low self-esteem and self-loathing that some people, I feel, I get the sense that their self-esteem needs to be bolstered because they don't feel like they're even good enough to receive the solution. They're so full of self-hatred and self-loathing. That's why I kind of come back to this idea that, um, you know, these people need to practice some self-forgiveness and self-compassion because I find that uh, the alcohol is a symptom of a deeper problem, right? They're, they're wrestling with things like trauma and they have no coping skills and so that's right. what the alcohol is. It was for me, it was a, it was a medication that frankly saved my life at one point. Cause I, I don't know if I would have been able to survive all the pain that I was experiencing if I had to do it without something to anesthetize that. Well, yeah, first of all, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. 
-hmm. and congratulations on your 29 years. But as you think back, Arlena, what was the turning point for you? What was it that that led you to value respecting and protecting your body more than the anesthesia the alcohol was providing? Well, you know, the thing towards the end, the thing that saved me, I felt like, uh, you know, the alcohol, it felt like it was saving me, but it was in the end, it was killing me. Right. Like it was, it was killing me. And I just got sick and tired of being sick and tired. I had a, I had an incident, as they say, I had an incident with uh, my older sister where I was physically abusive towards her while I was in a blackout. And she decided that she was going to go to Al-Anon after that. And I was so delusional. Like I was so self-centered, but I had no, uh, no way of processing any kind of self-examination. I was shocked. Shocked when she said she was going to go to Al-Anon. I was like, because of me, but that led me to start asking the questions. Am I an alcoholic? When did I cross the line? What about all the people that I surround myself with? Are they alcoholics? And it took me two years of trying to con- like control it and manage it before I was like, I, I, I've tried, I've shot all my angles and I have to uh, try abstinence. Right. But, but that's how I got there. Well, well, I, I'm sorry it had to get to that point, but you know, in a sense, your sister modeled for you what eventually you needed to do for yourself which was, you know, to admit you were powerless over alcohol and that it, if it seemed like a control mechanism, it wasn't. Um, and she took it seriously and that kind of laid a model for you to take it seriously. And she's saying, what you're doing is hurting me and I can't tolerate it anymore. Um, so hopefully you get to the point. And she sort of prepared the pathway for you to do it, which... Um, yeah. I mean, it was like, it was like she burst that bubble of denial. It's like, I couldn't deny it anymore. Right, right. And then even though I saw it, it was very difficult to really accept the idea that I was going to have to practice abstinence for the rest of my life, which is, you know, why my podcast is called one day at a time, because right. that was sort of like the mental trick I needed to, because I was like, how am I going to get married and not drink champagne at my wedding? <laughs> like yeah, that's a, right, right. such a silly idea, but yeah, yeah. I couldn't wrap my head around forever, but I could wrap my head around today. One, one day at a time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it does, it does point out by the way, that even with people who have a serious drinking problem, there are times when they're more sober than others. And to use a good therapeutic technique, you need to be sober enough, hopefully brain clear of alcohol for a while to, to think it through and act on it. Yeah. And one of the ways that people get immobilized with alcohol is that even if they have a good idea and good intentions, um, when they've got alcohol on board, they, their brains just aren't working very well. And so you need one thing you need to do to use techniques like self-hypnosis in particular is have your brain clear enough that it can do it because hypnosis is a a function of a highly functioning brain and so you it needs to be able to work well enough that you can think clearly and and manage it and and feel the effects of doing it right 
I have often heard that addiction can be described as the narrowing of things that bring pleasure. And when people first start practicing abstinence, there seems to be this, uh, life feels a little flat for a while. How long does it, and it's my understanding, I actually interviewed Dr. Anna Lemke when she released a uh, dopamine nation. And it was she's like, this, yeah. <laughs> she's amazing. Um, I have it all. I have her book on my shelf. Um, but it was this idea that it takes a little while for the brain to sort of reach back to homeostasis where, um, the brain, the dopamine reward circuit is healed. How long does it take for that to get healed? Well, it, it can take a while. I mean, you, you're all, you always, you're, (laughs) if you're alive, you've got dopamine, but, um, (laughs) you may be releasing it for the wrong reasons. You may have the wrong set of associations. You know, you think, Oh, if I only get to that next drink, everything will be fine. I'll feel good rather than, you know, there are multiple things that can give you a dopamine rush, you know, looking at a sunset, embracing your lover, um, you know, playing with your kids. There are a lot of things that can give it to you. And you're right. That's a good way to put it, that alcohol abuse tends to narrow the things that give you that dopamine rush. But I do think that the way to start on that path is not just to feel bad about what you did because that more often than not drives you back to another drink. Right. Yeah. But to, to ask yourself, who am I in a different way? Can I do something today that will make me, and that's the one day at a time to make me feel good uh, about myself. And that can be focusing on from today, taking on a different sense of responsibility for what goes into my body. You know, you wouldn't expect your car to drive you very far if you put sugar in the gas tank. Um, You can't expect your body to take you very far if you're putting this anesthetizing poison in your brain. So um, today I'm going to do it one day at a time, but not do it by saying don't drink because that's like don't think about a purple elephant. (laughs) Don't think about not having champagne at my wedding. Think instead about how good I'm going to feel if I'm today taking good care of my body, if I feel like a good parent for my body today. And that's something you can genuinely feel immediately good about. And while you're right, there's some dopamine depletion and problems in people who have substance abuse, you've still got dopamine in your brain. You can use it. So use it to have a genuine reason for feeling good today. And it's not just about not, not drinking today. It's about what you are doing about all the things you can do today to respect and protect your body. And one of them is to keep alcohol out of it. But another one is to eat well, get a little exercise, give your kid a hug, do a bunch of other things that make you feel good today. Yeah. There's this idea of what you think about, you bring about, right? So if you focus on the target that you want, want to hit, not on all the space on the target. Focus. That's right. on, On what you're for, not what you're against. Um, I also wanted to ask you, there seems to be some confusion around, um, or some, maybe there's some similarities and some differences between, um, maybe guided meditation and hypnosis. Can you maybe go over that a little bit? Sure. Meditation is a really interesting state and the, the widespread acceptance of this Eastern, uh, Buddhist tradition is uh, very interesting. Meditation involves you know three major components one of them is just open presence rather than fighting feelings or experiences just let them flow through you like a breeze blowing by or a wind or a storm passing by don't judge it don't fight it just experience it the second is using that open presence to examine your body you know do a body scan and see how different parts of your body feel 
kind of get reacquainted with your body because our bodies are strangers for a lot of us, but especially people with, with alcohol problems. Uh, and the third is compassion, feeling a sense of compassion for other people, but also for your own body, for what it's been through and for how, if, if you really take some time to feel compassionate about your body, you will feel compassion for all the things you've done that, you know, it didn't deserve. And so, but mindfulness, it's Eastern. That is the whole idea in Eastern is to, to step away from intentionality, from, you know, this is, I'm who I am. I'm David. I want to do this. I want to be this. And uh, researchers have found, uh, Judson Brewer at Brown has found that uh, experienced meditators turn down activity in that anterior, posterior cingulate cortex, the part of the brain that is this one of the centers of the default mode. So, and it makes sense. You want to sort of let go of your individual personhood and just be, you know, being rather than doing. And experienced meditators have less of that activity. But meditation is meant to be just a general way of being. So there are a lot of people who will go around and proudly say, I'm a meditator. There aren't many people who will go around and proudly say, I'm a hip hypnotized person, you know. They <laughs> no, and I've hypnosis, <laughs> hypnosis is Western. It's it's more problem focused. So with mindfulness, you know, you're you're supposed to just do it maybe half an hour, twice a day or something like that, just to be different. With hypnosis, you do it for a purpose, to stop smoking, to reduce anxiety, to handle stress better, to control pain. Um, and so it's quicker and more focused. And it's a, it's, a, it's a similar state, but it's not the same. So with mindfulness, you're not necessarily turning down activity in the salience network. You're not necessarily increasing connectivity between the executive control and, and the uh, mind-body insula uh, part of the salience network. So it's, and, and so it's, it's related, but it is not the same. And um, so you know, the Headspace, which is, you know, a major uh, mindfulness app, you know, it says that after three weeks, uh, the people who use them are 16% happier. Um, with hypnosis, we, we find that people can significantly reduce their pain um, and their stress levels in about 15 minutes. Uh, that they can take 19% of the people that use it stop smoking. Um, and so it's something where it's much more a problem solving tool rather than a kind of mental place you want to go to all the time. It is. Most people find it pleasant, but that's not the goal. That's very different, very different goals. Um, I, and that leads me to uh, I want to talk about the speed of effectiveness, because those of us with addiction issues, we want we're not great at delayed uh, gratification, yeah. Yeah. you know, and what I find so interesting about hypnosis is its effectiveness. And there's a lot of us that go into therapy once you sort of go down the road of recovery. Um, and I have this study in front of me, um, Dr. Alfred Barrios, um, he compared psychoanalysis, behavioral therapy and hypnotherapy. And it was so interesting to me that the effectiveness of hypnotherapy was so, you know, 93% recovery after six sessions as compared to psychoanalysis that was only 38% effective after 600 sessions. Ah, well, That's crazy, right? Right, right. It is. That's just one study, but I just yeah. thought that really spoke to the effectiveness. Uh, well, yes, it does. And uh, 
it, it's why my late father, who was a psychiatrist, hypnosis is something of a genetic illness in my family. <laughs> Both my parents were psychiatrists and psychoanalysts, and they told me I was free to be any kind of psychiatrist I wanted to be, so here I am. Um, but um, he found that. He, he learned to use hypnosis in World War II to help soldiers with pain and, and co combat stress reactions. And he then went back to doing psychoanalysis, and he found he was getting a lot farther with many, many fewer sessions teaching people to use self-hypnosis. So there's a value to self-knowledge, but I do think it's kind of a trap, particularly with addictions, where every day you're doing more damage to your brain and your liver and other parts of your body. That uh, even if it worked, you know, if you have to do it for three years, you know, four days a week on the couch, um, it, it may be too late by the time you get there. And I, I think this idea that you're sort of trapped in, in that if you don't understand how screwed up you are, you know, you can't improve. And that's just not true. You know, it may help and it may be a good thing to do on the way or once you've gotten there. But the crisis problem is something that you're every day putting poison into your body that is yeah. making you more likely to carry out the old patterns than less. And if you clear your brain long enough, you can begin, you can use techniques like hypnosis to detach from your old patterns to say, whatever it is that led me to do that, I don't want to do it anymore. And, and then maybe you'll learn about how, when you get some distance from them, you may be able to understand it better. But this idea that I can't, you know, bring myself to stop drinking until I understand why I got there is an excuse for just being stuck in the mud even longer. Um, and so what we do with, with Reverie um, uh, is teach people how to use self-hypnosis. Uh, it's an app that's available from the App Store if you have an Apple iPhone uh, or from Google Play if you have an Android phone. And um, you can learn, you can see how hypnotizable you are. We have a test uh, that you can take and see whether you're low, moderate, or high in hypnotizability. And whatever you are, there's a way of combining the therapeutic strategy with your degree of hypnotizability that can help you make the best use of it. And um, we then teach you an exercise, and it's interactive. So I'll ask you a question. You'll hear my mellifluous voice. I'll ask you a question. You'll give me an answer. We we analyze uh, what your answer means. And then I give you a, a, the kind of instruction I would in my office uh, to take the next step that is most likely to help you. And we teach you an exercise to practice. You know, if you need to every one to two hours, anytime you have an urge to drink, don't fight it, admit it, go into the state of self-hypnosis, get your body floating, um, and then carry out your intention. As you say, if you can uh, you know, if you can picture it, you can do it um, and and uh, give yourself another prompt to focus on respecting and protecting your body rather than fighting drinking. And so people are welcome to try it. Lots of people have tried it. Um, there's a website, www.reverie.com, if you want to read about it more and learn about what we do and how we do it. And the app it, itself has a lot of ex explanation as well, but you can get right into doing the exercise and seeing how it feels. No, I <clears throat> I personally love the app um, and we would be remiss not to mention the Reverie community. Um, yes. I have attended some of the workshops. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, I think I yeah. uh, wrote down her name, Shelby. Yes. 
I wrote so her good. name down somewhere. I can't find it at the moment. Yeah. But yeah, so I've attended some of her meetings because there was yes. like a a work, you know, goals workshop because Okay, so let's say that the crisis of addiction is resolved and you're sort of like, you know, like people like me that are sort of on the path of recovery and we're trying to sort of rewire our brains. Um, what I think is so interesting, you mentioned detaching from old patterns. And what I think is so interesting, it's like, we all know what we should be doing. I know I should be drinking wa- lots of water and sleeping eight hours a day and exercising and doing all these meditation and uh, self-hypnosis. But I find that even though we know what we should be doing, we sometimes self-sabotage. We're like in these, we're like stuck in these patterns or we want to do something like I've been stuck on this manuscript that I've been writing for a while and sort of find this self-sabotage pattern happening. How can I break that? (laughs) Can you heal me? If you could just fix me, that'd be amazing. (laughs) Sure. And part of it, um, uh, Arlena, is the the exercise, doing the exercise itself should be its own reward. You should wind up feeling better saying, okay, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to carry out my plan to, you know, write another five pages of this thing. But I feel good when I do the exercise. So you go into the state of self-hypnosis. Um, imagine you're floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub or floating in space. And picture on an imaginary screen somewhere you enjoy being. You know, it might be a favorite vacation spot or a hike or a swim or something you like to do. And you notice how quickly and easily you can use your stored memories and your imagination to help yourself and your body feel better. So you start out not feeling you're depriving yourself of anything, but feeling you're doing something that makes you naturally feel good. And then you can picture, okay, so what will make me feel even better if I get it done in the next few hours? And picture how you would feel when you've written the five pages and how good that will feel. And it's a way of luring yourself into doing the right thing rather than forcing yourself into it. You can see, you know, I will feel a lot better if I did it. Or think about the last day you did that and how good you felt when you finished that piece of work and went on to something else. So it's a way of giving you the immediate positive reinforcement that we all need to move ahead in life. It's just amazing how a simple shift in perspective can can change the outcome dramatically. That's that's well put, and it's exactly right. We, you know, perspective is important. It's a shorthand for doing what you need to do in life. And a lot of the things we do, it's because we know we want to be a good parent or do well in our work or keep the house clean or whatever it is. But sometimes you can get trapped in it, and sometimes, particularly as you say, if you have this sort of perspective i'm a loser i'm going to screw up everything i do i shouldn't even try because i'll just make it worse what you're doing is digging yourself deeper into the quicksand and that's a situation where um, being able to cut loose from your traditional sense of who you are and what you do can be a real benefit you just say you know it's sort of allowing you to write on a fresh page and just see where you go and choose what you want to affiliate with and be for rather than what you're against Right. It's so funny because those negative thoughts of, you know, maybe public criticism or things like that, it comes so quickly. So it sounds like the self-hypnosis is a conscious practice of focusing on the feelings that uh, of like having already accomplished it. Yes. Focus on what you're for. And part of who you are is what you've done. And that's not always pleasant. 
but part of it, you've done some pleasant things. So give yourself credit for that. But part of who you are is where you're going, where you're heading. And so your past is not the total determinant of where you're going to be. Um, your future is too. And, and one thing people need to realize is that even though if they've made many mistakes and gotten stuck in the mud a, a lot of times, um, they have the potential to be someone different the way you became someone different, you know, you, yeah. you but you know, some of it is, you know, the hitting rock bottom thing that AA talks about, but some of it is saying, you know, I, I don't have to land on the bottom before I <laughs> decide that who I want to be is a part of who I am now. And I yeah. can affiliate with that and not just where I've been. Yeah. And I feel like that goes back to the shaping identity, like, you know, there's part of acknowledging who I really am. Like I'm never going to be an NBA basketball player. Right. So that's <laughs> 54, five, three. I don't think that's going to happen, <laughs> but uh, having realistic expectations sure. of what I can kind of accomplish is, sure. is important. Um, you know, you, you mentioned something uh, and I did want to touch on this because a lot of people in recovery uh, don't want to take things like pain medication. And I have heard you talk about how, um, you know, hypnosis can allow us to access uh, abilities that we may not realize we have, like the ability right. to control parts of our body physically. Um, I know you tell a great story about like why you decided to go down the road of hypnosis with the, with the girl, with the breathing issues. Sure. Um, and I know you have done a lot of uh, work around helping cancer patients. Yeah. Uh, I'm so curious. So for the people who have like chronic pain, right. who are trying to practice abstinence, um, how does hypnosis work to address that? Sure, Alina. Um, well, the, the summary line is that the strain and pain lies mainly in the brain. Um, that is, you know, you sounds may- sounds familiar. Yeah, you may, you, may, you know- twist your ankle and signals go through, uh, you know, up, up the spinal cord to the brain, the brain decides what those signals mean. And to give you an example, right now, I can see you're sitting on a chair. Hopefully, you are not at all aware of the sensations in the parts of your body touching the chair. If you were, we can just stop. The right <laughs> There's that Spiegel sense of humor. <laughs> but um, you know what? Um, your brain decided that those signals were irrelevant and I'm not going to pay attention to it. And, and, you know, you know, after a while it can hurt if you're just sitting in the same position, but your brain says, this is not a problem. The brain, you know, we are pretty pathetic physical creatures. We don't run that fast. We don't smell that well. We don't see that well. We don't hear that well. Um, and so one of our major defenses was being able to control pain because predators uh, detect motion. That's how they, say something's alive and they want to follow it. So if you have the ability to modulate your reaction to even, even when you're injured, you have a better chance of staying alive. And so the, this, you know, three pound organ on the top of our bodies um, are one of our major advantages is forming so, and maintaining social relationships and modulating our perceptions. So that's an advantage. It's not a disadvantage. So if you've really just broken your ankle, you better do something about it. Or if you're having crushing substernal chest pain, you better get to an ER quickly. You may be having a heart attack. Um, but a lot of pain, you know what it is, but our brains often respond to all pain as if it were acute pain. It's so, oh my God, there's a new feeling here. Even though people who have like a chronic joint problem or something know it and 
moving it actually makes it better. People with arthritis, they actually feel better later in the day than they do when they first wake up because they're moving the joint more and feels better. So pain is not always a bad thing. And the brain can decide how much attention you want to pay to the pain and how much you really don't need to. And, and so we did a randomized trial published in the British Medical Journal, The Lancet in 2000, 241 patients getting, they, they had to be conscious during the procedures. It was a cut down into the artery and you were doing chemoembolization in the liver or visualizing arterial stenosis. And they, there were three conditions. The first one was standard care, which meant you had an IV, you could push a button and get opioids during this procedure. The second was that plus a friendly nurse giving you the kind of social comfort that helps people. And the third was hypnosis. At the end of an hour and a half, these procedures took about two and a half hours. The hypnosis group uh, pain level on a zero to 10 scale was two. The standard care group was five. And, and the um, friendly nurse group was in the middle, was about three and a half. If you looked at their anxiety scores, um, the, at the end of an hour and a half, uh, the, the standard care group was five, the nursing group was three, and the hypnosis group, I was afraid they were all dead. They had no anxiety at all. They were doing fine. You had to check for heartbeat. <laughs> right. The staff was feeling better, and they got done 17 minutes quicker on average, just because they weren't watching the patient obviously suffer. The, the hypnosis group used half the amount of opioids that the standard care group did. And they had far fewer complications that were often drug-related. So at the end of this randomized trial, they got done quicker, they were happier, they were less anxious, they had half the pain and half the medication. And now if you published a finding like that with a new drug for an anesthetic, uh, you know, every hospital in the country would be using it now. But people just have trouble believing that the brain is that good at managing pain. Um, I had a, a young woman who came to see me who was pregnant. She was seven months pregnant. She had really bad lower back disease. And so as the baby got bigger, her pain got worse and they couldn't give her medication because she was pregnant. And she'd had a, a nerve stimulator implanted that didn't help. Um, and she was seven out of 10 on pain when we started hypnosis. 15 minutes later, she was three out of 10. You know, she, I, she said, I can live with this, you know. And she looked angry. And I said, what's the matter? She said, why in the hell are you the last doctor I got sent to instead of the first? Exactly. And so people think that pain is all bottom up and it is not. The brain helps you decide how much pain you have. So you can have, one thing I often do with hypnosis is have people imagine that they're in a physical situation where they get pain relief. So a lot of people with joint pain, for example, think a warm bath is wonderful. So I say, look up, close your eyes, take a deep breath. And now imagine you're in your bathtub and feel that sense of warm, tingling, numbness penetrate deeper and deeper into your body and let it filter the hurt out of the pain. And a lot of people can substantially reduce their pain doing that. Not everyone can get rid of it, but a lot of them can reduce it. You pay more attention to pain, it'll hurt more. If you can focus on it, you don't say I won't feel pain. You say focus on a competing sensation like warm, tingling, numbness. Or with some people, I have them imagine going somewhere else, you know, go to your favorite beach and just feel the warmth of the sun on your body, leave your body here and go somewhere else. And some people that helps for some, I have, I use the sort of more meditative approach of feel compassion for your body. You know, many people resent their bodies, you know, you're, you're dishing out hurt all the time. 
and say, you know, your body is doing the best you can. Think of your body as if it were your child and comfort it. Would, you know, if your child were hurt and were crying, um, would you get angry at the child? No, you would try to comfort them and do the same for your own body or try to move the pain around. There are lots of techniques we can use, but it can substantially help people with pain. And in the old days before ether anesthesia, hypnosis was a major anesthetic during surgical procedures, 80% surgical anesthesia with hypnosis. So the brain, you know, it's taken us a long time to remember that the brain is the major regulator of pain experience, and you can control your brain doing that without resorting to drugs. That's amazing. Um, I wonder, um, you know, I've kind of had this idea. I, I talk a lot about uh, self-esteem and building self-esteem. And I tell people, you know, it's something that you practice. It's likened to like, you wouldn't go to the gym once and expect to stay in shape forever or eat one salad and think that you're going to be thin for life. Is this something that is, is practiced on a regular basis? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I tell people, you know, Anytime you you feel an urge to do something you're worried about, don't fight it, admit it, but sit down or lie down, go into the state of self-hypnosis and focus on this principle of respecting and protecting your body or control your pain that way. Um, and it can you, the nice thing about hypnosis is you can do it pretty much anywhere except when you're driving your car, <laughs> unless it's a Tesla with autopilot. Well, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not so sure about that either. I'm not so sure. And, and, and focus on... Uh, this uh, your ability to modulate your impulses to do things focus on what you're for and modulate things like pain and you can do it in you know five minutes uh, and you should do it particularly at the beginning very regularly so that you understand how to do it you can feel it inside and you know how to get there quickly and effectively and then anytime we we did one randomized study with women with metastatic breast cancer uh, we met weekly in a support group, helped them deal with their fears of dying and death, helped them learn that they had resources within themselves to help others, like in AA, for example, um, and taught them self-hypnosis for pain control. And by the end of the year, the women randomized to the group rather than standard care uh, had half the pain the control group did on the same and low amounts of medication. So you can use it for chronic as well as acute pain. And you just, uh, patients would say, you know, before when I got some new ache in my chest, I was sure I had more metastases and it would freak them out and it hurt like hell. Say, so now I just do the hypnosis and cool tingling numbness and I feel okay. So um, it, it works well for chronic as well as acute pain. That's amazing. Um, I'm not going to keep you too much longer, but there were yeah. two things I was kind of curious to get sure. your opinion on. Um, uh, one was age regression and the other one was past life regression. <laughs> I know you, have some, you probably have some thoughts about the past life regression. I, I do. You know, I, I, what I, I'm waiting for somebody from one of my past lives to tell me what I should <laughs> think about it. And so far, so far I've had no messages. No, no evidence. I, you know, because hypnosis uh, can cut you loose from ordinary perceptions of yourself and, and ways of thinking about things, it can also, you know, cut you loose from the plausibility test that I may have, uh, I may think I'm having an experience. Like if I tell someone, you know, you're on the beach, you know, your favorite beach in Hawaii watching the sunset, you can have that experience pretty intently and enjoy it without necessarily believing that you were there in a past life. And so the re the sort of vividness of the experience doesn't necessarily attest to the reality of the experience. <laughs> right. 
So, and I think in hypnosis, I think falling in love can be like that too. <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. And hopefully you chose the right person, yeah. but that's, it is like that. It is hypnosis. Yeah. You know, we, we use terms like that. I, I yeah. feel entranced. She mesmerized me. You know, we I use those hypnotic like terms because suddenly there's nobody else in the world. Right? Everything about that person is wonderful. That's amazing. And, and hopefully more often than not, that's right in terms of falling in love. Yeah. But it, love is a trance-like experience. It is. Where yeah. you you sort of let go of all the other things you thought you were, the other things you thought you needed to do, and <laughs> just get absorbed in the relationship. Yeah. And it yeah. comes to define you more. That is a hypnotic-like experience. And that's a good one. Yeah. Um, but so I, I think past life regression is a fantasy. It's, it's not a reality. It's a believed in, hypnosis has been called believed in imagination. And so while you're experiencing it, it may seem real, but it doesn't mean it is. Um, as far as, uh, you know, re regression, hypnotic age regression, yes, that can happen. I've had people who can relive experiences earlier in life, uh, including one was a Stanford student who was very hypnotizable. And uh, um, I had him go back to being, you know, a few months old just to see what would happen. And normally when people do that, you know, you tickle them under their arm or something, they start to giggle and, you know, they act like a baby and they can't, they, they can't talk, you know, they just sort of, you know, act out what it was wow. like to be a baby. But yeah. this kid started to cry and I didn't understand what was going on. So afterwards we came out of the self-hypnosis and I said, did something happen to you when you were a baby? And he said, well, of course, I don't remember this, but my mother tells me that I had an abscess, a really bad infection under my left arm when I was oh. born and I had to be on antibiotics for a while. And so I happened accidentally to be tickling the part of his body that was causing him pain at the time. And that's why he was crying. So oh. um, I think we do have these earlier memories. They're nonverbal. You know, we start to have episodic memory at about age three or four. You know, that's when you start to remember having done things. And it's shortly after we develop speech. So, you know, we have a, a verbal framework for understanding yeah. uh, what we remember. But it doesn't mean that the part of the brain, the, the hippocampal gyrus that lays down memories isn't working. It just means that it's not working in the same way as it does when we can explain and discuss what it is we've experienced. So... Uh, I think there are uh, ways of using hypnosis to just intensify your focus, you know, use a flashlight in your memory basement and see what you can remember a little more intently. And sometimes you can. It doesn't mean that what you recall is true if you recall it under hypnosis, but it doesn't mean it isn't either. And it does help some people recall things that otherwise they had difficulty recalling. Yeah. Wow. It's so fascinating how the brain works and how we can, I mean, I've heard you say before that we were born with this brain, but we don't have a user's manual. That's exactly right. But it seems like we're getting closer. Well, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. people can read the manual and use it better or listen to it. <laughs> well, you've been putting out such amazing content. Uh, I really appreciate the research that you're doing. 
um, that right. helps people to heal. I mean, anybody that's a healer has a, a soft spot in my heart. So I just want to thank nice. you so much for all the You're work welcome. that, that you've yeah. done and, uh, for spending time with me here today. Um, sure. if people are, uh, interested and so we're going to encourage people to, uh, look at the reverie app. I'm not paid or Great. sponsored or anything yeah. for it, but I, I find thank it you. personally very helpful. Do you have a roadmap of future, uh, features or additional uh, meditations you're going to include? We're, we're, we have one coming online pretty soon for fear of flying. A lot of people, mm. I think it's like 15% yeah. of people who would ordinarily fly are too afraid to do it. So we wow. have a self-hypnosis exercise to deal with uh, fear of flying. And uh, that's, that's the next one that's queued up. Um, and um we're we're working on others uh, yeah if i can put in a vote i would i would vote for a self-esteem or like i'm good enough i'm (laughs) Mm, that's an interesting that's an interesting idea well you certainly have helped pave a pathway for people to feel good enough and i admire the work you're doing helping people uh, thank you so much that means a lot to me and and, uh i'm just so excited about your work with uh all your colleagues you have many fine colleagues that you're doing excellent work with so thank you i feel very lucky andrew huberman is one and and, uh, such a fan yeah yeah, all my girlfriends love him (laughs) he is charming he's charming he's fascinating and he can he has this combination of making it really enjoyable to listen to this yeah. very sophisticated discussion of the latest in science. He's just so good at that. It's really fun to. No, to it's so, to. so I'll have to admit that sometimes, you know, he kind of gets into the weeds and I don't care. I just try to follow along. It feels yeah. like a, a it's something my brain likes to chew on. Like it's yeah. real, they're really deep concepts, but yeah. he's like a cool guy, a cool nerd, if that's a thing. He's like a, he's a unicorn. I like that. That's he's a, a good. Yeah, he's a unicorn. I'll tell him you said that. He'll get it. Please do. That. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, Dr. Spiegel, okay. thank you so much for your time today. And welcome, uh, I look forward to all the work that you do. Thank you. Keep up the good work too. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. thing before you go, you can follow the podcast on Instagram for daily inspiration at ODAT podcast. And if you'd like to get a bi-weekly email from me with recommendations to books I'm reading, meditations I love, or other recovery podcasts, just sign up for it at odatchat.com. That's O-D-A-A-T chat.com. And if you do, I hope you enjoy it.